Good morning. It's good to be with you here again at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. Um, many of you have asked about uh, my family and, and my vacation from this last week, and we thoroughly enjoyed ourselves and had the opportunity to get away. And uh, some rest and relaxation is always a good thing to recharge the soul, and so we were able to do that. And I thank you uh, for a church family giving us that and providing us that opportunity to do that. And I'm also grateful to the staff who, in whose capable hands I left things when I, when I depart. And I'm grateful to Pastor Dave for filling in for me last week. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a great amount of uh, um, confidence that you can walk away and know that it is in good hands when you are gone. And you as a church family ought to be grateful for that as well, to know that that is the case. And so uh, we are grateful for that. We want to continue to pray for, for, for Dave as well as all the rest of those, as Ted mentioned earlier, who are in Guatemala serving on mission there this week. And so continue to remember them and lift them up in your prayers throughout this week that God might grant them safety and that he might grant his grace to go before them and that he might open hearts and minds and eyes to the truth of the gospel and that much fruit will be born by their time there in Guatemala. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 44. Genesis 44, we're going to continue our study through this book and we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And perhaps there's some of you here who've not been on this journey with us as we've been working our way through the book of Genesis. And if that's the case, I just want to kind of reset things for us all uh, this morning. We're in the middle of an extended narrative that focuses our attention uh, on the life of a man named Joseph, who was the 11th born of 12 sons to a man named Jacob. Jacob was the son of Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. And significantly, this story concentrates about what has happened with Joseph. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Um, but his favorite status got him into significant trouble with his older brothers, particularly. Um, they, those ten older brothers became jealous of Joseph. They, they stripped him of his coat of many colors that many would know about that, that, that Jacob, his father, had given him. They threw Joseph into a pit, and they ultimately sold him into slavery. And then those ten older brothers dipped Joseph's coat of many colors into goat's blood, and they took it back to their father, Jacob, in an attempt to get him to believe that Joseph had been killed by wild beasts. But then through a twisting and turning series of events that displays God's divine providence, and a phenomenal story, the details of which I will not take time to rehash this morning, Joseph went from being a mere slave to being the second in command in the land of Egypt which was the most powerful country in the world at that time. And it was while he was in that powerful position that we read that a great famine hit not only in Egypt, but in all of the countries surrounding there. But because of Joseph's foresight, because of his administration, because of his management, Egypt was able to not only be able to store up enough grain and enough food to support themselves, they became the central point that all the other countries in the world would come to in order to get their food. And it, this is where things get really, really interesting in the story because suddenly 
Joseph's ten older brothers come from Canaan, and there they are, standing in Egypt right in front of him to buy the grain that they had come to get, to buy food. But they don't know it's Joseph. When they look at him, they see an Egyptian. They see the governor of the land, the one whose responsibility it is to dole out the, the, the grain and to set the price. But Joseph knows exactly who they are. When he looks into their eyes, he sees the eyes of the ones who refused to hear his cries for mercy. When he looks into their eyes, he sees the ones who sold him into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. When they see him, all they see is the most powerful man in Egypt, as far as they know. But when he looks at them, he sees them for who they truly are. Now, it's at this point in the story where Joseph encounters his brothers for the very first time in over 20 years since they had sold him into slavery, that we might get the impression on our initial reading that Joseph is going to, this is going to be a story of his revenge against his brothers. A story that, that ends with Joseph standing victoriously over his ten vanquished brothers with his hand stuck up in the air saying, you see, that's what happens when you mess with a guy like me. Now that's what we would probably, we might think. But I want you to know this is not a story about revenge. This is a story about reconciliation. This is, this is not a story about division and war. This is a story about reunion and peace. In fact, in our previous studies of the last two chapters, chapters 42 and 43, we learned two distinct but very interconnected points that tell us not only about Joseph, but tell us about God. And, and, and tells us not only about how Joseph treated his brother, but about how God treats us. In fact, let me just restate those, those two things that we learned from those two chapters. It's this, is that in his great love for us, God often uses the dark providences of life. He often uses severe mercies to, to pursue us and to bring us to a point of understanding our sin. But you know what he also uses? He also uses undeserved graces. And he also uses tender mercies to soften our hearts, to make us aware of our sin so that we will turn to him, repent of our sin, and be reconciled to him. And in other words, as we will continue to see Joseph's goal for his brothers and God's goal for every single one of us is reconciliation. And as we will see today, there can be no reconciliation apart from genuine repentance. In fact, I'm going to do something a little out of character today. It's going to mess some of you up. That's okay. Church is sometimes a good place to come to get messed up and thrown out of our norm. I'm going to give you my sermon in a sentence on the front end. Now, it, it messed Ted up so bad in the first service that I gave my sermon in a sentence on the front end that he forgot to come forward at the end of the service. He was waiting for me to say it. Here's my sermon in a sentence this morning. I'm hoping that this is going to help us be able to to understand what chapter 44 is all about. My sermon in the sentence is this. There can be no reconciliation apart from genuine repentance which acknowledges guilt, is accompanied by real sorrow, and results in a change in our intellect, our emotions, and our will. 
Now, I hope to be able to demonstrate that truth from our text today, so let's read it together. But what I want to do is just to back up a couple of verses into chapter 43 to sort of set the context for what we're going to read in chapter 44. And so here we are. We're in Joseph's house. All, all 11 of his brothers are there in the room. And notice what happens. They sat before Joseph, verse 33. The firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. And then Joseph took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving, that's the youngest, was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also, put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. And so he did, according to the word that Joseph had spoken. And as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys, and when they have gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. So he overtook them, and he spoke these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these things? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we will also be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched. He began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Then Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he with whom the cup has found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. 
And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down if our younger brother is not with us. Then we will go down. If our younger brother is with us, we will go down. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in, his, in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees the lad is not with us that he will surely die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. And let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for your holy scriptures that we have that we can open up and read. We thank you for the fact that they form for us, as it were, a mirror that we can look into that shows us who we are with true clarity that also points us to you and gives us the picture of you, the one who is gracious and merciful and not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So I pray this morning as we study your word, your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts and move among us Convict us of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. Bring us also to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ who has died for us. And help us to walk in obedience to your holy word. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now before I get to an exposition of the passage that I've just read for you, let me begin by saying that as it pertains to salvation, which at its very essence... It's what it means to be reconciled to God. We know that faith is absolutely necessary. As Paul and Silas declared to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, verse 31, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus himself declared in John chapter 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. The Apostle Paul clearly states this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and those verses that we all know so very well, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith is absolutely essential 
for salvation. But we must also acknowledge that with regard to reconciliation, repentance is also necessary. Jesus clearly states the necessity of repentance. In fact, when he launched into his earthly ministry, he paired those two things together, repentance and faith. Mark records his very first words in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where Jesus says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus states, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And later in Luke chapter 13, Jesus states this, Unless you repent, you will so with regard to the, the, the subject of repentance, Billy Graham has written these words. He says, with regard to repentance, the Bible commands it. Our wickedness demands it. Justice requires it. Christ preached it. And God expects it. The divine unalterable edict is still valid. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, the reason that I've taken this much time to, to, to discuss the subject of repentance primarily is because I believe that we ought to recognize the sheer importance of it. The fact that God's desire is that each one of us should repent. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Do you not know that God's goodness and His forbearance and His long-suffering, the goodness of God is demonstrated toward you in order to lead you to repentance? Furthermore, God not only desires repentance from you, but as I have stated, without repentance, reconciliation is impossible. I mentioned Luke 13 earlier. On that occasion, Jesus was questioned about two different disasters that had occurred. He was questioned about Pilate's massacre of some Galileans, and he was also questioned about the Tower of Siloam falling and killing uh, many people. Both of, both of those two events involved the loss of many lives. And in his answer, Jesus challenged his listeners by warning them this way. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus makes it clear that repentance is not limited to a segmented small group. But rather, all of us need to repent. You see, because we are all sinners, repentance is necessary for all of us. And because sin separates us from God and creates enmity between us and Him. God desires that you repent of your sin and He desires to be reconciled to you. So that in and of itself is an infinitely worthy reason for us to discuss the subject of repentance. The question is, how does this subject of repentance bear upon our text here in Genesis 44? I am really glad that you asked. You see, as I was pointing out at the beginning, while we initially thought that Joseph might use his, his position of power and his position of advantage over his brothers who did not know who he was, yet he knew exactly who they were, that he might use that position of power and advantage over them in order to, in order to, to enact his revenge upon them. I mean, after all, look what they had done. They had separated him from his father. They had taken him out of his homeland. They had caused him to become a slave. He had even spent years in prison as a result of what these boys had done to him 20 years earlier. 
Who of us would have blamed Joseph for desiring to take his frustrations out on them and to seek revenge upon them for all the pain that they had caused him? But it is key for us to realize that Joseph's goal is not revenge. Rather, Joseph sets out to be reconciled to his brothers. But as our text clearly shows us, before such reconciliation could occur, Joseph needed to know had there been any change in these boys. Were they still the same old in-it-for-yourselves kind of guys that they had been two decades earlier? Or had something transpired in them? Had they become different people? Well, to find out, Joseph needed to test them. In fact, note with me the first point on your outline this morning that I've listed for you there. The first point is this. It is the intentional test. The intentional test. In full disclosure, however, let me say this. There are some scholars who believe that the test that we find here in Genesis 44 was indeed not intentional. Some argue that Joseph had his silver cup put into Benjamin's sack so that he could stage the point where he would be found out and that Benjamin would come back to Egypt and, and live with him there in Egypt while the other brothers went back to Canaan and, and therefore Joseph would be able to reestablish his relationship with his younger brother, the only brother who, who also had the same mother Rachel and the same father Jacob. And that the, the, the issue of his brothers wanting to come and, and come to Benjamin's aid was not something that he anticipated and that the positive results of that was something that would only occur after the fact. On the other hand, there are others, and I would include myself in this camp, who believe that Joseph acted intentionally. That his, his purpose was to put his brothers to the test. And the reason I believe this is because of that little tidbit piece of information that we read at the end of chapter 43. When they had the big feast in Joseph's house, did you notice what happened? He set the brothers in a line from oldest down to youngest, and they had no idea. How did he know? They hadn't told him their age. They didn't have a birth certificate to give to him. How did he know how, what their ages were? And, and how could he just realize to put them in that order? And then every time Joseph would get up from his table and come and serve his brothers, he'd take five times the amount of food down to the youngest, down to Benjamin. And he'd give him more. Now, that doesn't mean that the others didn't get all the food that they needed and wanted. It just meant that Benjamin just had an overabundance of food and that, and that Joseph was obviously making, making and doting over that youngest, uh, the youngest brother. Now, what's interesting is that I believe in many respects that was the first part of the test. I believe that Joseph searched the eyes and the facial recognition of his brothers and watched as he kept taking food down to that younger brother to see how they would respond. Because you see, many years earlier, it had been Jacob, the father, who had doted over Joseph, clothing him in that coat of many colors, making him the overseer of his elder brothers, displaying his obvious affection and favoritism. And as a result, his, his brothers became jealous and they became resentful. And they hated Joseph because of the treatment that he received. The question was now, would his brothers do the same with Benjamin? Who was being doted over and specially treated by this Egyptian. No doubt I believe that Joseph searched their faces and looked to see what he could find. But the Bible doesn't tell us that he saw anything. So after they had all gone to bed that night, he set up the next set of the test. He told his steward, he said, go take all the money that they brought to buy the grain, put it back in the mouth of their sacks, and oh, by the way, take this silver cup, the one that I always drink out of, put it in the sack of the youngest one. 
And when everything, all this happened unbeknownst to the brothers. And so when they woke up the next morning, they all mounted their donkeys. They said their goodbyes. They put everything in place. And they headed back to Canaan. And I can just imagine this was probably the best trip. I mean, after all, all 11 of the brothers were there. They had been proven that they were honest men. They didn't have, they weren't worried. They had Benjamin in tow. They were going back to Jacob. They had all the grain that they needed. Man, this was a great time. And I could just hear them singing songs and cutting up. After all, Simeon's with them. Simeon had been, in, had been a slave for the previous ever how long they had been gone. This was a great time. They were excited about going back. And you can just hear the, the, the good music playing in the background. And they're just singing and laughing and cutting up. Everything's great. Except everything wasn't great. Because the Bible tells us suddenly they're overtaken by that same steward. And you can just sort of hear the needle scratching across the record. And suddenly everything just coming to a halt. And he says, you've done something evil. One of you has taken the silver cup of my master. And they say, wait, whoa, 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 hold on, big fella. That, that doesn't even make sense. None of us has stolen anything from your master. Look, when we came back from Canaan, we brought the money back with us that had been put back into our sacks the last time. That doesn't make any sense that we would bring money back to him and then steal something from his house. In fact, we're so confident that none of us stole anything from your Lord's house that if you find it in our sacks, you can kill the one in whom has stolen it and the rest of us will become your slaves. Little steward said, that won't be necessary. It's as you said, the one in whom we sack, we find the silver cup will, will become our slave. But the rest of you can go free. So, they said, well, go ahead and start searching. And so one after the next, they pull the sacks off of the, off the camels. And the steward starts. And he starts with the oldest. He starts with Reuben. And he looks through, and surely enough, there's nothing there. And he makes his way down. Now, remember, this is the same steward that knows where this cup is. He knows it's in the youngest. So he's building the tension of the moment. He begins with the oldest and works his way down. And the whole time, you can just see those guys are probably going, I told you you wasn't going to find anything. I mean, you can keep looking all you want to. You're not going to find it. It's not going to be there. Go ahead. Spend the rest of the afternoon looking if you need to, but you're not going to find it. And he works his way down from the oldest to the youngest. And sure enough, he gets to Benjamin's sack, and he opens it up, and there's the bag of money. But you can just almost hear the grain rolling across and making that tinging sound. And they hadn't heard that. And suddenly the light from the sun shines down and it glints off the side of that cup as he pulls it up and he says, aha, here it is. Now, what's interesting at that moment is that Moses tells us that the brothers all tear their clothes. That's a little weird for us in our context today to know exactly what that means. But in, in, in biblical times, to, to tear one's clothes was a sign of lament. It was a sign of grief. And what's interesting is that Gordon Wenham notes that when Joseph disappeared back in chapter 37, when he was gone, the only person who tore his clothes in chapter 37 was Jacob. But here, here all the brothers tear their clothes in grief, which Wenham notes is the first sign of fraternal solidarity. Now, consider what lay in front of the brothers at this point. They had a choice. The steward had already told them that the, only the guilty one need to return and become a slave. All the others could go free. They could go back to Canaan. 
But according to, verse 30, according to verse 13, each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Now, as I said, I believe that Joseph had intentionally set this test up to see how his ten older brothers would respond. He had constructed a situation that, was, that paralleled the one that he had faced many years earlier. The only difference is that Benjamin is now the one who takes Joseph's place with being the favored younger brother. And this situation was ripe for betrayal. After all, the ten older brothers, they could have plotted and said, well, let's go on and go back to Canaan. We'll just leave Benjamin here. We'll tell Dad the same thing. We'll tell him that a beast came along and killed Benjamin, and he's no more. Or they could have said, look, Benjamin stole, and he got caught, and he is now in prison in Egypt. We could just tell him the truth. Whatever the case, we could, but we can go free. We can sacrifice him so that we might be set free. But that's not what they did. Instead, Moses tells us in verse 14 that Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house and they fell before him to the ground. Now here's what I want you to notice about what Moses is doing. When Moses tells us that Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, do you notice what he's saying? Judah is now the leader. Judah's the one that leads the brother. Wherever Judah goes, the other nine follow. Whatever Judah says, he's speaking for the rest of the brothers. And also notice this, that, that in, verse, in chapter 37, Joseph had those dreams about all the sheaves, his brother's sheaves bowing down to his sheep, and all of the stars bowing down to his stars. Well, right here, we begin to see every bit of that coming to play. And all of his brothers now, they're back at Joseph's house. And Joseph continues asking him questions. What is this that you've done? And Judah takes the lead by responding. And his response may surprise us. Judah doesn't immediately begin defending Benjamin, stating that Benjamin had no idea how that cup got into his sack. Nor does he use the logic that he had been using. The logic that says that, look, we brought you the money back, so why would we be stealing from you now? Instead... Instead, Judah says this in Genesis 44, verse 16. He says, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Do you remember, do you remember on the first trip when they had found the, the money in the mouth of their sacks on their way back to Canaan. And when they first figured out that they, the money that they were supposed to pay for the grain had been returned to them, there was not a sense of excitement and joy. No, there was just the opposite. In fact, according to chapter 42, verse 28, when they found that money, they, it says that their hearts failed them and they were afraid, saying to one another, what is this that God has done to us? In other words... They realized that God was somehow at work in the circumstances, that, that in his justice, he was searching them out. He, his divine finger of justice was pointing and touching something in their lives that they had kept secret for over 20 years. The fact that they had sold their brother into slavery. Well, here in chapter 44, according to Judah's words, as they find themselves standing before the governor of Egypt, that truth is driven home even deeper. Though I believe that they knew that Benjamin was not guilty of stealing that, that silver cup, Judah nevertheless recognizes that they were guilty of a crime far worse than theft. 
that as the brothers as a whole, they were guilty of selling their brother into slavery and that it was God who had found them out. God has found out the iniquity of your servants, he says. But notice, notice that Joseph once again gives Judah and his brothers an opportunity to leave Benjamin behind and go free. He says, far be it from me that I should keep all of you. Just the man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. So now the moment of truth has arrived. Here's, here's where they're going to either pass the test or they're going to fail it. These brothers can either abandon Benjamin just as they had abandoned Joseph or they can try to save him. They can, they can once again cause unimaginable grief to their father or they can do whatever they possibly can to prevent further grief from occurring. And here is where we come to the second point on your outline. Notice that Judah clears his throat and looks the governor of Egypt in his eye and then he offers the impassioned plea. The impassioned plea. When, when I read... For you earlier, beginning in verse 18, is one of the longest speeches in the entire Old Testament. And it's gathered a lot of commentary. One has called it the most poignant and powerful speech in the Old Testament. Another has said this, that in all of literature there is nothing more pathetic, and by that he means pitiable or moving or touching than this appeal. Another has written this, that this is one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man. For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. And still another has said this, this is the most moving address in all the world, in all the word of God. Bruce Waltke has noted that Judah's unusually long speech is a study in persuasion. And it represents a reversal of the brothers' transgressions. These brothers who had been so angry and, and, and indifferent toward their father... And so jealous of their brother, they conspired to sell him into slavery. Well, now they are here begging for their father's well-being and offering themselves as slaves to save their father's now favored son. And the noted Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rod, he writes that Judah's words had shown that the brothers had changed. They obviously intend to treat Rachel's younger son, Benjamin, quite different from the way in which they had formerly treated the elder son. What I want you to note is that the pinnacle of this speech really comes in the final two verses, in my opinion. When Judah says this, he says, Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. You see, Judah is telling Joseph that he was willing to become Joseph's slave even though he was declared innocent of the theft of the cup. And he, he wanted to do that because he could not stand the thought of causing any further suffering to his father. So he offered himself in Benjamin's place. Now think about that. This is the same Judah who over 20 years earlier was the one who counseled the rest of his brothers. Let's sell Joseph into slavery. At least we can get some money for him. And he did that without any thought whatsoever to the grief that it would cause his father. 
Now, 20 some odd years later, he's saying, take me as a slave so that my father will not have his head go down to the grave in grief. You see, this is the test that Joseph had set up. And in this speech and in Judah's offer, Joseph finally gets the answer that he had been looking for. And what he found was genuine repentance. I quoted Billy Graham earlier. Listen to what he lists as the three elements of genuine repentance. First, he says this, there is conviction. In other words, for true repentance to take place, you must know what is right before you can know what is wrong. In my sermon in a sentence, I referred to it as the change in the intellect. Graham says this, he says, if you get on the wrong road, you'll never know it's the wrong road until you come to realize what the right road is. He says, consequently, there can be no turning back unless first there is a conviction that you are going the wrong way. That's what it means to have a change of intellect, to understand what is wrong and to understand what is right. The second element of repentance that Graham notes is contrition. I've determined it or described it as a change in emotions. Psalm 34 verse 18 says this, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Contrition, or godly sorrow, as it is called in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, it's not a shallow sentiment. It's not an empty emotion. Rather, it is a sincere regret over past sins and an earnest desire to walk in a new path of righteousness. The third element of repentance that Graham describes is the idea of changing. Changing your mind, changing your attitude, changing your ways. I've listed it as a change of will. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. It says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Graham writes this. He says, if we are truly repentant, our will is brought into action and we will make a reversal of direction. And God, seeing that we are earnest, gives us the gift of eternal life. All of these elements, conviction, or change in intellect, contrition, or change in emotion, and a resulting change in our will. All of these are evident in Judah's impassioned plea and in his willingness to exchange places with his brother Benjamin. The question is, what's going to happen? Is Joseph going to accept him and allow his life to become, uh, allow him to be the slave and, and let Benjamin go free? Will, will he turn Benjamin loose and take all the other brothers prisoner? Will Joseph continue to remain distant from his brothers, keeping his identity concealed from him? Well, Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Before we conclude this morning, I want to point out to you one last thing. Not about Joseph, but about Judah. You see, even though Judah was willing to become a slave to save his brother Benjamin, we'll come to find out that he didn't have to become one. And here's the point, even if he had, even if he had become a slave in order to save his brother, Judah deserved to be a slave. In fact, he deserved much worse in light of the things that he had done, in light of the sins that he had committed against his brother. But as Kent Hughes has noted, the beauty of this story actually lies beyond it. In the fact that Judah's willingness to suffer for his brother foreshadowed the substitutionary vicarious atonement of his ultimate son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. You see, the good news of the gospel is this. 
Jesus voluntarily suffered and died in the place of sinners like you and like me. But Jesus never deserved any of the pain and any of the suffering that he, that he received. He lived a perfect, sinless, holy life. He deserved none of those things, and yet he willingly accepted it upon himself so that sinners like you and like I might be set free from the penalty of our sin. It is his self-sacrificing love that saves us. It is him that brings reconciliation between us and God. And that's what brings me back to where we started. You see, God's goal is not revenge upon sinners. It is reconciliation. As the scriptures teach us, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that reconciliation comes only through what Christ has done. God has given the Lord Jesus Christ to die on the cross and shed his blood for our sins. And God has raised him from the dead. And it is his death and his resurrection that provides the ground for our salvation and our reconciliation with God. And as sinners, you and I must place our faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as sinners, in faith, we must repent of our sin and turn from it in order to be reconciled to God. Repentance and faith go hand in hand. So let me ask you. Have you repented? Have you come to the place in your life where you recognize your sin and you desire to forsake it and you confess it before God? As I have attempted to show, genuine repentance results in godly sorrow that brings about change, a change in your intellect, a change in your emotions, a change in your will. So the question is, have you changed? Is your life different from how it once was? I want you to know there can be no reconciliation apart from genuine repentance, which acknowledges guilt, is accompanied by godly sorrow, and results in a change in our intellect and our emotions and in our will. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and that you, you declare to us the truth. You show us from your scriptures exactly who we are and what our needs are. We can't hide behind anything. We can't continue to look side to side and say that this is about someone else. Because the scriptures declare that it is something that all of us must do. Every single one of us in this room must come to the place where we recognize that apart from your grace and mercy, we will stand condemned before a holy and just God. Your desire is to be reconciled to us. And you have provided the means by which our reconciliation can occur, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so you call us to faith and to repentance. Our prayer this morning is that there will be not one who will leave this place having not come to grips with that. My prayer is that your Holy Spirit might bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. My prayer is also this morning that you would continue to encourage us by the love that you have shown us through Christ. Help us to understand that love and to live in light of it. I thank you for this day and for this opportunity to spend time in your word. Now I pray that you would glorify yourself in this time of invitation. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake.